All right, we're on week three of this uh, role as high priest. So I did want to highlight um, just a couple aspects that we've talked about the last couple weeks, and then we'll finish up today this, this idea of Jesus Christ as the high priest. So we've talked about several things, and a lot of this, when you think of high priest, right, we have to think of what Jesus did, to, the work that he did to earn our salvation. Right? And we often have to remember, we, we quickly go to the death right on the cross and the shed blood. But we also have to remember the life is just as important. All right? So we started with the fact that as high priest, Jesus was what? He was a sinless human being. Right? He had to be obedient as a human. That was the life aspect of it. And then the rest of it was really talking about what he did, the work on the cross, right? his death. Shed blood, pain for our sins. His death was what? Voluntary. It was substitutionary. Who should have died? Us, right? The penalty had to be paid. So he was our perfect substitute. His death was propitiatory. Means what? Satisfies the wrath of God. Right? Takes that wrath away. Satisfies it past, present, and future. And maybe as important or most important, all-sufficient Savior and only Savior. We're going to talk a little bit more about that today. And just as important, right? He was raised from the dead in what? In spirit? In bodily form, right? That's important, in bodily form. So this last um, lesson, Lesson 7 on page 51, we have three more points that we're going to talk about regarding his role as high priest. And, and where we left it, like I just said, is that, um, you know, he died, he w was buried, and then he rose again, right? And that's what we covered last week. He was with the disciples for a short time. Today, we're going to talk about what happened next, his ascension, where he actually takes his final place in heaven, seated at the right hand of God. So point eight there on page 51, Jesus Christ ascended into heaven and was exalted to the right hand of the Father. He ascended into heaven in his, in his glorified human body. So that first verse there, the bold, So then, when the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. Did you ever wonder why the right hand? Why not the left hand of God? What's so significant about the right hand? It's a place of honor, exactly. Um, Grace, I'm going to call you out. What's your rank in the military? Staff sergeant. Staff sergeant. So if you're walking along with, uh, let's say, a major, where should the major be in relation to you if you're walking down the street? I'm putting you on the spot. Mm -hmm. i got to be honest, that is not something we cover because most of us do not interact with the officers often enough for that. <laughs> All right, fair enough. It, there was a lot of protocol, right? But it was on the right-hand side. And it was funny. I can remember walking down the, the street or to the next building with a senior officer. And we're just talking. And I'm on the right-hand side. And the light bulb goes off. So we quickly shift over to the, to the left so that that person is on the right-hand side. But it was intended, again, to just be a place of honor, right? That's the significance of the right-hand side. All right, let's skip down. And I want you to turn in your Bibles to John. John 15, because remember, he's, he's now with the disciples, right? He, they, they saw him die and buried, and now here he is in bodily form, and that's where we're going to pick it up, that, that time in between him being raised and his ascension. All right, let's go to John 15, and I want to pick it up in 18, just to set the context. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So he's getting ready to, to tell them something, right? So let's pick it up now in chapter 16. I have said all these things, the things I just talked about to you, to keep you from falling away. He was trying to encourage them. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning, because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you ask, 
Where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. So put yourself in the shoes of the disciples, right? They, they were with the Messiah in bodily form, day after day after day. He dies, he is raised again, and, and he's telling them now, I'm going to leave you, but I need to leave you, right? So I can send the helper. You can imagine what was going through their minds. And again, the admonition was there, I don't want you to fall away, right? I want to encourage you that the Holy Spirit is going to come and give you all the power that you need to live life. Okay? Um, we read 16.7. Again, I'll read it. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper shall not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. God's redemptive plan is always what's best for us. And that's what he was trying to convey here, right? I have to go away. I have to finish that redemptive plan by going to my rightful position at the right hand of God. And I want to iterate earlier, we talked about a place of honor. I'm not suggesting there's a rank order there in the analogy I gave, right? It's simply a place of honor. Jesus and God the Father and the Holy Spirit are one being, God, one in essence. Okay? All right, let's move down to, I'm in John 20 now. Cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, and my God and your God. Good. So who is her in this passage? Um, Mary. Mary, Mary Magdalene, right? She was at the tomb, um, and, and there Jesus now, and, and he's saying, Stop clinging to me. What do you think he was getting after there? Rex? I will answer that, but I had a question. Were there two ascensions by Jesus? Because Jesus is here saying, don't cling to me. The word literally means, don't detain me, because I'm ascending. Uh, and this is right after the resurrection. Mm -hmm. So did Jesus go to heaven and come back for those 40 days? I don't know, Rex. Um, what what I know, and Pastor Allen, please jump in there. I mean, what I know is he was raised, mm -hmm. right, from the tomb, and now we see him mm -hmm. with the disciples. Well, I'm basing it on this verse here, mm -hmm. because the word literally means don't detain me. So if he's going to be waiting 40 days, what's he being detained from? That, that's fair. I think that's one view. One commentary that, that I read um, um, had this to say is this idea of clinging to his physical presence, that, that Mary was, was used to the physical presence of Jesus Christ, and, and he left for that time, right, during the death and burial, and now he's back, and there could be a temptation to want to cling to Jesus Christ. Not that she would ever hinder him from being ascended, but he's saying, I have to go. I'm going to go. Grace. I mean, there is also just the literal practical aspect of while she's there, like, the implication I always got was that she's literally holding on to him because, like, she, he just came back from the dead. She's right. very emotional. Right. But while she's there literally holding on to him, she's not going and telling the disciples what happened. She's not spreading the word about the resurrection. And until that happens, the rest of what we see in the chapter can't. So obviously there would have been other ways for God to accomplish it, but the way that he has it play out is that she needs to go tell the disciples. They need to come see the tomb for themselves, and mm -hmm. then all of the appearances of Jesus over the 40 days can happen. Right, and he, he tells her to go do that, right? Exactly. Mm -hmm. uh, Pastor Allen, please. Um, yeah, I think most of the disciples, all probably of the disciples, um, all throughout his ministry and even after his resurrection, we're assuming that he was bringing the kingdom now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And his death on the cross, even though he foretold it to them multiple times, took them um, 
it's not by surprise, it, it, it set them back. You know, what is going on here? They're confused and so on. And I can imagine it would be natural for, in that context for someone to say, oh, well, he is alive. We're back to plan A, right? <coughs> yeah. Um, and he's saying, like he's been telling them in the upper room, it's better for you that I go. Don't cling to me. Um, we're in a new stage things here mm -hmm. now, or transitional in the resurrection appearances, but um, he's still trying to get them to think longer term. He's not going to be around to do yep. what they think he's right. going to be doing. And even when the day he um, is ascended in Acts 1, they're asking him that very question. Uh, so is now the time when you're going to restore the kingdom and, and all this? And he had to set them straight. No, this is... Yep. So yeah. I think it's a, it's a natural human expectation in that context. And so he's trying to get them to think longer term that he's not going to be around and it's for their benefit. Yep, to think uh, eternally. That, that was the sense of the, the commentaries that I read. So, so thank you for that. And thank you for the question, Rick. Well, can I say one more, one more thing? Sure. Um, the Old Testament's Saints uh, couldn't go to heaven until the blood was shed. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of commentaries say that this is the time, the Feast of First Fruits, that he took them there and came back to be with the. the that's where I was baiting you at this scene. Where you uh, with that. Thanks for the bait. <laughs> <laughs> because it's no longer there. He emptied paradise. He, Abraham's bosom, you know, the blood was shed. Matthew even refers, there's a scripture there where. It says the, they came out of the graves. Um, and, and I say that because we go straight to heaven now, but they didn't because the blood hadn't been shed yet. This idea of him returning, let's go right to the next passage, Acts 1, 9 through 11. Grace, can you read that for me? And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intensely into the sky while he was departing, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And they also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. All right, this idea of just the same way, all right? Talking about he will return. What way did he go up? And, and don't, don't read into this too much, but what did, what did they see? What happened? Physically, right, in bodily form, he was raised into the clouds, right? And it's saying he will return the same way in what? In bodily form to do what Pastor Allen talked about. That's when he's going to set up his kingdom, right? Everything, that, that's what they were waiting for. That's when that's going to happen. But right now, he needs to ascend. He needs to be at the right hand of the Father to complete that plan of redemption. All right, good. All right, turn to Ephesians 1. So what I want you to pick up as I read this is, um, let me read the passage, Ephesians 1.20, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places. So we've been talking about this position, seated at the right hand. What, what's happening though, which he brought about? What did he bring about? So I, I want you to be thinking about, here's the benefits of completing that redemption, of ascending and sitting at the right hand of God. Picking up in Ephesians 1.15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, and here's where I want you to pay attention, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, have, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. So did you catch that? Um, by raising him, a, we now get a spirit of wisdom, of revelation and knowledge of him. We have uh, eyes that our hearts might be enlightened. We get the hope of what we've been called to, the riches of his glorious inheritance a measurable greatness of his power towards us, right? Beautiful, beautiful blessings 
because of Jesus completing his ascension and completing that plan of redemption. Good. All right, let's jump down to Hebrews 1.3. Lewis, can you read that one for me, please? Yes. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So a lot of he's in there. Let's, let's go through there. Um, and he is the radiance. Who's the he there? Jesus. Jesus of his glory. The Father, right? Uh, the exact representation of his nature. It's the Father again, right? I love this verse, Hebrews 1.3, simply because, and he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. I've said this before. You want to know God the Father? Know Jesus Christ the Son, right? That's why we study the Gospels. We study the life of Christ, right? The exact representation. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. We're going to talk in a little bit about the confidence we should have knowing that Christ ascended and sits at the right hand. Right? That's what we're talking about, some of his roles as high priest. So again, as a recap, he's ascended, what? In bodily form at the right hand to do what as high priest? That's point nine at the bottom of page 51. At the right hand of the Father, Jesus Christ now mediates as our advocate and high priest. As high priest, Jesus sympathizes with our weaknesses. We've talked about that in previous lessons. He represents us to the Father and intercedes on our behalf. This idea of representing us to the Father, right? We are justified. If we are in Christ, we are justified before God the Father. Why? Because of the blood of Jesus. He sees Jesus when he looks at us. We are declared righteous. All right, this, this first verse here. My little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not only for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. This idea of advocate, what, what does that mean, an advocate? Someone who will like, speak on our behalf. Okay. Um, I might be mixing it up with other verses, but in this verse, isn't the word they're using like literally like legal representative? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, it's the Greek word parakletos, one who pleads the case of another, just like a lawyer would on your behalf. The beauty is what Jesus is the ultimate advocate. He wins every time. He wins every time. Why? Because he has already paid the penalty. How many lawyers would pay the penalty for you? Right? So this idea of advocate, I want you to think about someone who pleads for the case of another, right? And Jesus always wins. All right, top of page 52. And here's where I want you to get a sense of um, the confidence, if you will, and the hope of what happens as, as we think about the, the truth here. In whom we, Ephesians 3.12, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. So let, let's pause here for a second and ask ourselves, why do we sometimes lack a boldness or confidence in a, approaching the throne? We see the truth here. We know what Jesus did. We know what role he has. Why do we lack a boldness? Get real for me for a moment. Miss Kareem. Um, when I'm very, I'm just very aware of my sinfulness, and um, I know in my head that what the gospel says is true, that I am cleansed from my sins, and I can approach the throne, but when I'm so aware of my sinfulness, I, it causes me to falter. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Any other comments on that? I mean, this is real, isn't it, guys? Don't we all face this? I mean, what Kareen was describing was, what do we often do? We, we in that time of sin or the, that burden of sin, we, we do what? We condemn ourselves. Right? Lord, I, I fell short again. I can't approach your throne. And yet Romans 8.1, we'll go to that um, in a little bit, tells us what? There is no condemnation. 
right? We have to fight those thoughts and hold to the truth that we can come with boldness and confidence to the throne at any time. I, I just, I love that. We continue on the next verse, Hebrews 6. Uh, Johnny, can you read that for me, please? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so this hope we have in the anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the, the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Good. All right, again, this idea of a hope in the anchor of our soul, right? This can be in those times when we're having those times of doubt. Verses like this need to be an anchor, a reminder of what we have in Christ, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil. I'm going to show you a picture you guys know, but of the tabernacle, there was a veil between the holy and the holy of holies. Only the high priest could enter into the holy of holies. Sometimes I think we have a fear that, yeah, we can pray to God, but we, we can't enter into the holy of holies. Jesus Christ has torn that veil has torn that separation between God and man for those who are in Christ Jesus. Right? So those are, are wonderful, wonderful um, truths of encouragement. We talked last week about this idea of the order of Melchizedek. Um, anyone want to summarize what, what they remember from that? Who is this, who is this high priest Melchizedek? Not a Levite. Not a Levite, right? It was not hereditary. <laughs> Right? It was not um, due him because he was born into the tribe of Levi. Right? He was outside of that. He was special. And that was a type that, that pointed forward to Christ. Was Christ from the tribe of Levi? No. no. Right? He came from what line? Judah. Judah. All right. Do you have a comment? Just that he was also a king. Which yep. I think is really cool and interesting. He was yep. a priest of the Most High God and king of Salem. Yes, good. All right, Hebrews 8, 1, and 2. Heather, can you read that for me? Sure. Now the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary, and in a true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. Yeah, so I just wanted to emphasize here the true tabernacle. Again, I'm going to show you some pictures of, of the complexity of what it meant to to go into the tabernacle and all of the feasts and all of the ceremonies and all that had to happen, um, Jesus entered the true tabernacle. And I like this, which the Lord pitched, not man. Right? This is always the Lord's doing. Jesus Christ did the work. Hebrews 8.6. John, can you read that for me, please? But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. Good. So we're going to talk in a little bit about this idea of a mediator. And um, let me just cover the next verse, and then we'll talk about the covenant. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. So what are your ideas? What is, what is this new covenant? Versus, uh, let's do this. What is the blood of Abel referring to? Sacrifice. The Old Testament sacrifice system, right? Uh, that's what we've been talking about. The tabernacle, the feast, the sacrifices, and, and all that was involved Hebrews with that. Eight. <laughs> <laughs> and Hebrews 8, we just covered that. Excellent. <laughs> What's the new covenant then? Instead of the law of grace, it's... Oh, I'm sorry, the law, the law, it's, it's, grace. it's grace, right? It's the law of grace. That is the new covenant now. And, and we're going to see, again, I want to show you some pictures of just the complexity of what was involved, and that's all been taken away. That's all been fulfilled through Jesus Christ. And we can now enter through and into the true tabernacle. Just a, a wonderful, wonderful picture. All right, good. So he's our advocate, he's our intercessor, but what about this idea of a mediator? So point number 10, Jesus Christ is the only mediator between God and man. Christ being the infinite God-man and being fully adequate as high priest is the only mediator God recognizes. So what is this idea of mediator? Think differently, it's a little bit different than advocate, although similar, but Give me some thoughts about being a mediator. What, what is a mediator in general? Speaks on your behalf. 
speaks on your behalf, or may get involved when there are two warring factions, right? And mediator is often someone who has to try and bring them together. What is our relationship to God in our fallen state? It's separated, totally separated. Because God is holy, 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 he cannot have anything to do with sin. And that's who we are in our fallen nature, right? That's the veil. We, there is no way, there's no mediator that can bring that together except for one. So Jesus Christ is that go-between. That's what mediator is, an arbitrator, right? A go-between. He restores peace. Now we know that Jesus Christ is the only mediator that can restore that peace between God and man, right? What do many of the false religions do? All of them. They have a different way of mediation, whether that's good works or different gods or different traditions or different ceremonies, all of them. That's what they're trying to fill is that gap of how do I restore man to God, right? Um, let me pause there because Pastor Allen, you do a, a, a whole um, growing disciples on other religions. I mean, anything you want to re- relate there or add to that? Well, only that point that every other Apart from biblical Christianity, all religion is a religion of works. And um, sometimes it involves mediation by some other third party, but everything boils down to a religion of works. In my experience sometimes in the secular world with mediation, um, often it can bring a, a, I'll call it a temporary... um, arrangement of peace where at least people are now talking but there's often not true restoration right it's a negotiation and and you get to a common ground it's not true restoration that we see here in jesus christ so let's cover a couple of those passages starting with first timothy 2 5 jenny can you read uh, that one for me the first one Right, so not one God and many mediators, one God, one mediator. And that's the message we have to be giving to those who are not in Christ, right? That's the hope that they have to hear. There is one mediator, one way. <clears throat> Hebrews six nineteen and 20. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So we just read that, right? But these truths are so, so important. We cannot enter without Jesus Christ. Let me read. um, Let's go down. Oh, comment? Yes, please. No, good. One beautiful thing about Jesus, our mediator, is that it's a win-win agreement. Because when you are reaching an agreement, there is always some win and loss and discomfort in both parts, but they are reaching that point. But mm-hmm. in this case, it's a win-win for us. And it's amazing because we don't have anything to lose. <laughs> yeah, and that's what I was trying to get at. Often it's a, we, we compromise, right, when we try to restore that relationship. Um, good. But I, I think in that context, we, we have to be careful too. What what role are we playing in in you know this mediation, right? It's all Jesus. It's all Jesus. It's win win in the sense that we didn't have to do anything, right? That we meditate the eternal life. We are going to be with God. Yeah. So forever yeah. with Him. So yeah. Good. All right, let's jump down. I want to, because we, we've covered some of these verses here, I want to jump down to Hebrews 10, 11, and 12, kind of halfway through there. Miss Lauren, can you read that one for me? Hebrews 10, 11, and 12. Yes, and every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sin for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. Good. So we've talked about this before, right? And we'll cover it when I show you the pictures. What what did the high priest have to do? Year after year after year had to offer up the sacrifices, right, on behalf of the people. And then in Jesus we have one time, once and for all. Since therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place. Again, we've read that verse, but wanted to emphasize the confidence to enter the holy place. 
And then let's go down to the uh, bold verse there, 1 John 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate, right? Someone who's fighting on our behalf, if you will, with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation, right? Satisfying the wrath of God for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. All right, I want to, let's go to some Old Testament um, books, if you will. We're, we're at the end of Exodus going into Leviticus. And, and so this is just a picture. These were slides I had from my Old Testament survey. But just to kind of give you a, a picture or a glimpse, I know you're all familiar with, with some of these stories, but pictures sometimes help. So they had the Exodus, and it, it did not take them long, actually, to get to Mount Sinai. It's just it's, it's um, several months to a year by the time they get to this point where God gives them very detailed destruction instructions on how to build the tabernacle. And the tabernacle is all about, here's how I want you to come and worship a holy God. This is what I, I demand from you. And what was it doing? It was a foreshadow, if you will, a type of what was needed of what was going to come and what Jesus fulfilled right through his death, resurrection, and his ultimate ascension. All right, so that's where we're at. Um, again, we're, we're at the end of Exodus going into Leviticus. And this was just a picture um, that I, I grabbed from the internet of what it could look like. Actually, the tabernacle and the surrounding aspect of it, uh, kind of the, the outer um, borderline here, the fence, was really quite large. I, I think I remember it like a quarter of a football field. Right? It was very, very large. And inside of that, you had the, the tent of meetings. And you had the holy place and then the holy of holies, which we've been talking about. And that's where the Ark of the Covenant was, um, where, where the Lord had a manifestation of himself, right, with the cloud, and you can see the, the Ark, behind the veil. So there was the, the very thick veil. I've been told it's thick as a... Um, you, not everyone will remember this, but phone book, right? Boston phone book. Very, very thick. And that's what Jesus tore. That was what was torn when, when um, Jesus died on the cross. And then you have all of these other artifacts, if you will, that have you know, a lot of symbology to them. The perpetual flame with the candlesticks. The table of showbread, right? The 12 cakes representing the 12 tribes. Um, the altar of incense, right, where the prayers were offered. But out here is where the, um, the sacrifices were. And then the high priest, before they went in, had to cleanse themselves, didn't they? Right? They, they were sinful as well. So, again, a very complex, um, ornate, uh, even to build the tabernacle, very complex, but very orderly, right? God had very specific instructions. Now, the high priest who went in had this very ornate garment, a lot of jewels. In fact, um, I think the 12 tribes were actually written on the ephods that, that kept that together. But this whole garment was really centered around this, breast, this breastplate of judgment. And inside there were two, I don't know if they were stones, but pieces of material, the thumum and urim. You'll hear that reference, right? And it was kind of like casting lots. Depending on, on what happened with uh, the position of those, that was getting direction from the Lord. And you'll see in the Old Testament that kings would often, you know, counsel with the high priest to get direction based on, on these stones. All right, so again, I just want to point out very ornate, very complex, very ceremonial. Okay? Now, the actual um, tabernacle it would move with them. So the, the Lord, the pillar of cloud, the fire by night, when it moved, they moved. And they would have to pack everything up and, and move it. And when they, when they camped out, this is the very distinct order that they had to have things set up by direction. So you can see the, the positions up here. The front of that always had to be facing to the east. And here's the camp of Judah, right? Um, the line of Jesus. And then you have the, the priestly Levites, um, the tribe of Levi, and all the tribes had their order of where they had to be. And then when they marched out, they again had a very distinct order on who went where and where was the covenants and, and where were all the artifacts. And this was a rendering of what that might have looked like, but it was a big, big deal. right? You're talking about thousands and thousands of people in a very distinct order 
marching along as the God as God is taking them to the promised land. Another story of how they actually quickly got to like 11 miles away from the promised land and then spent 38 more years wandering in the wilderness. But in addition to the tabernacle, right, there were these five offerings. Uh, I'm not going to go in, in, in detail just to simply say there was, again, a lot of complexity to um, the offerings and the services that they had to render. Again, trying to um, have this relationship with a holy God. So these were the offerings, and then you have the seven feasts. And, and again, they were all very symbolic, um, but a lot of activity. Could you imagine having to do that today? No. No. Right? All those ceremonies, having to go to the tabernacle. Um, it's just, it's mind-boggling. And yet, Jesus completed all of that. Completed all of that. I think that was it. All right, good. All right, any questions about that? I just, I, I think it's always helpful to see visually the magnitude of what was happening with the tabernacle. Yes? Can you go back to the last one? The, the like, name and then the number above the Bible verses, what are those? Like the Nissan 14, Nissan Yeah, don't go there, Kayla. No, I, I don't remember. You know, I grabbed this from... Um, yeah. Okay. yeah. All right. Pashon, you are going to add something. Only that I, everybody probably knows this, but just to emphasize that the uh, tabernacle was portable by design, by you know, purpose, because of all the wandering and whatever. It ended up, being, when they entered the Promised Land, it was established in Shiloh. We see that in, in uh, uh, 1 Samuel and, and so on. Uh, but eventually, they built a temple patterned after the order of the tabernacle. So it was very much built to be, the temple in Jerusalem was built to be a permanent structure, not a portable one, but it followed the exact same pattern. Yeah, and we see the, the grandeur of that um, temple from Solomon, right? It was destroyed, and we see it being rebuilt, not to the same magnitude. And we know um, when Jesus returns, or prior to that, right, the temple will be restored, right? So keep your eye on what's happening in Israel, for sure. All right, any other questions, comments about that? Good. All right, let's uh, work over to, to page 53. You know, we didn't have a lot of material for today, but we do have some good um, interpretation questions, so we'll spend some time on uh, kind of the application, if you will. The first question on page 53, why can't there be mediators between God and man other than Jesus, such as ancestors or Mary or priests? Right, they're, they're sinful too. Right, so they also need mediators. What else? Only he has fulfilled all the requirements of the law. Right, right. Only Jesus was sinless, and only he paid the price for our sin. That's the that's why he can be the only mediator. Tears up. I think it's interesting when you think of mediators. I at least often think of how Christ is mediating and like puts us into God's good graces. If you will, like puts us into a right relationship with God and forget that He also needs to mediate in the sense that we're sinful and God can't be in the presence of sin. And without that, like almost holding back of God's judgment, we would face that in the psalm. And I can't remember the reference, and this is a paraphrase, but it says something like, Correct me, O Lord, but in your mercy, not in your anger, lest you mm. bring me to nothing. Mm. So it's like, yes, God can correct us, but like if He were to like unleash judgment on us according to our sin, like we need God's or Christ's mediation in that aspect as well. Yeah. I think that's a great, I'll call it visual. Sometimes we talk about a mediator, a secular mediator where, okay, here I am and I'm trying to bring two people together. So, hey, here, you over here, I'm going to present you to each other. I'm going to help you work things out. <clears throat> that's not the visual here, right? I mean, Jesus Christ as the mediator basically encapsulates us, encapsulates the church and is presenting that to God. That's the restoration of that relationship. Does that make sense? So that's a beautiful picture, I think. All right, any other comments on that? Why can there be no other mediators? Yes, Lauren. Um, I think a really good question, Paul, kind of that I was like, if others could mediate, but Jesus would have needed to make that sacrifice in the first place. Because mm. Revelation states that there was no one found on the earth that could... And that had paid for the deed of mankind. It was just Christ. Right. 
right? Yeah. Yeah. Grace. Uh, I was going to say something pretty similar to that. It's just that, um, and like mostly just the like Christian denominations, not the like completely pagan religions, but those ones, they always have there needs to be repeated sacrifices and or there's going to be repeated symbolic sacrifices or something like that. But it's always saying that Christ's sacrifice was not enough, that it, either he needs to be sacrificed more than once or just we need to make sacrifices to supplement that right and always just undermines Christ's deity and power. yeah grace that's a great point because um we can often fall in the trap we start with right and paul admonishes the people often in the epistles you started with this grace where jesus christ was your mediator and then you started to put stuff back on there right traditions earning your way through works and that's the danger Right, that's a danger. Anytime we add mediators to what Jesus Christ has already done, Miss Green. Just building off of what you were saying, I was thinking about um, specifically Mormonism, and mm-hmm. I mean, but and I was reading Jehovah's So basically, you were saying that um, it undermines his deity, but really, Jesus isn't God for them. Mm-hmm. So it's just another aspect of his worthiness or what he had to be in order to fully pay that price. Yeah, and that, yeah. Like that a little bit gets more into the like pagan versus Christian things. Like I wouldn't say that Mormons even have a right to call themselves a Christian denomination. Right. I was thinking more like Catholicism because like they literally teach that they're like re-sacrificing Jesus every single mass and it's like yeah. at least some priests would say that. Some would say no. Mm-hmm. Good. All right. Any other comment? Al. Um, maybe a way to summarize the uniqueness of Christ is that in order to be the perfect mediator, you're really the only valid mediator between God and man. It has to be a God-man mm-hmm. um, who has has stature with God because he is God, stature with man because he is man, the perfect man. Good. All right, let's go to number two there. How did the priest and sacrificial system of the Old Testament foreshadow Christ's role as high priest? Why weren't they sufficient in and of themselves? We've talked a little bit about that, but just what are some of the highlights? All right, so um, sacrifice for their own sin. Good. Uh, They were a reminder that blood, that life needed to be shed to pay for the wages of sin. And they were not enough. Uh, for the reasons that we've already discussed, because uh, in order to pay for the sins of humanity, you needed a God-man, somebody fully God and fully human. That's the only possible way that's right. you could save humankind. So animal sacrifice is not going to do that. Right. Yep. No, that's it. That's it. I mean, none of those animal sacrifices were sufficient, were they, right? They, they were temporary. They, they were a type. They pointed to a future state that was going to be fulfilled in Christ, but they were unable, right? You needed the God-man. You needed that sinless human, the shedding of his blood. Yeah, excellent. Any other points on that one? Yes, Miss Lauren. So the high priest's role was meant to intercede for the people mm-hmm. for, the, for the overall sacrifice of the year to cover any sins that hadn't been um, brought forth by, you know, the dove or the bull or the grain, whatever the Israelites could bring, and it was like the annual way of covering so that the relationship between God and his people could continue. Right. Um, Christ's role in that is exactly that. Our sin is, is, is hurt, you know, it's, it's throughout our entire yep. life. And so his job is he covered us so mm-hmm. that our relationship with God can continue. Mm-hmm. And that's his role as the high priest. That's right. And the distinction is it's permanent now, right? right? It doesn't have to be annual. Miss Cream, were you going to add something? I was only going to say that it's only the high priest that could enter mm. the holy of holies. This is only Christ who can be our high priest. Yeah, good. What else? Any other similarities you see there? Why was it to our advantage that Jesus ascended into heaven? And it references John sixteen seven. We covered that earlier. You guys might remember it. Um, let me see where that is. Yeah, it's on the on page 51 in the top section there. But I tell you the truth is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper shall not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So obviously, right, he says I have to go to send a helper. What's the significance, though, of 
sending a helper, you know, the Holy Spirit. Wouldn't it be great to just have Jesus on the earth all the time? We will eventually. We will eventually, <laughs> but... I mean, him staying on the earth, the old covenant basically just would have stayed in place with Jesus the high priest. And now we have the new covenant, but for that we need the Holy Spirit to be here instead. That's right, right? He needed to complete that plan of redemption. Um, what are some of the other, we, we talked about some of the other benefits when we talked about Ephesians 1.15, right? The power that we will have through the Holy Spirit, the knowledge, our eyes being opened. Those are all additional benefits of, of Jesus being ascended and, and filling his rightful role as the high priest at the right hand of God. So one thought on that. Mm -hmm. The Holy of Holy, only the high priest, one again, he can answer, but... This is the presence of God in that place, but now we have the Holy Spirit. We have God dwelling in us. So what amazing is that? Exactly, exactly. So all the more reason, right, we have to uh, approach the throne in confidence. Um, we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit daily. We need to be in the Word. Um, I think it was last week we talked about, Pastor Allen talked about, you know, those, those sins. So what? We need to be transformed. Our mind needs to be transformed. We need to flee youthful lust. We need to stand firm against the devil. We need to put on the full armor of God with confidence, with confidence. Good. Yes. Ayo, go ahead. The doctrine of the standing, when I read this, I focused on Jesus ascended into heaven. Uh, but the text 16, 7, talking about Jesus went away so that those spirit could come. I was just wondering about that ascending into heaven. Did it have any significance? Um, he's talking about the same event. When he's saying, I have to go away, I have to ascend into heaven and, and sit at the right hand of the Father. I have to fulfill that role as the high priest. Does that make sense, or am I not answering your question? Yeah, it, it makes sense that Jesus has to go away to fulfill that yeah. role. I was just thinking about the significance of him really ascending and not... Another going away, another way. I'm just thinking. Maybe I'm thinking too deeply. Um, no, I, I, maybe I'm not understanding your question. But it was, it was he needed to ascend into heaven, right? Mm -hmm. And and so that's what he was saying. I have to go away to fulfill that um, plan of redemption. I think you might be asking, like, why did he have to literally ascend? Why not just like Okay, all right, that's fair. I'll give you my thoughts, but, but somebody else jump in. We, we kind of covered it earlier. Potentially, I mean, one aspect of it is what? Is that they saw him ascend, right? And they visually saw him ascend how? In bodily form. And it was said that he's going to return the same way. So part of it, um, it's a great question, Io, is that they needed to understand how he ascended, right? That he still had his bodily form and he was going to return in bodily form as well. I think that's one aspect of it. Does that make sense? That answers the question, actually. Okay, I all right. I think that would be the answer to this question. Yeah, okay, good. All right, let's jump to number four. In what sense is Jesus both our judge, and you see some passages there in Acts and Corinthians, and our mediator, advocate. <clears throat> so let me just highlight, excuse me, <coughs> let me highlight <coughs> these uh, passages of him being judged. So Acts 17, he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. So obviously God the Father will judge the world, the man he has appointed, Jesus Christ. Second Corinthians, all appear before the judgment seat of Christ and they will receive what he has what, what he, we, have done in the body, whether good or evil. And then this idea we've talked about of a mediator, advocate, in First John we covered that, um, of what that role is. So what is this idea of he, he is going to judge um, even us as Christians? What does that mean? <clears throat> as believers. Well, he's, he's going to assess our work. Mm-hmm. Right. Rex. There is a judgment seat of Christ once we get to heaven for Christians only. Mm -hmm. 
all-star aren't there. But that's when basically our lives will be exposed. But we're in heaven, and it's basically for future rewards. Whereas the great white throne judgment is simply for lost people. And uh, Christ doesn't, doesn't <coughs> intervene for us because we, they're not under the blood. Yeah. But there are two separate judgments. That's exactly right. Johnny. I think, I think about a couple of the parables. One of them is of the talents, right? You know, how well did you invest your time and your efforts, right? Mm -hmm. um, did you yield forth you know, much of your investment? Um, and then there's the parable of the soil where the good soil, some will reap 30, 60, 100 fold. Mm -hmm. So there's going to be varying amounts in which we will be rewarded. Yeah, good. So you guys are picking up on this. Don't forget what, what we have studied um, for the last several months, these attributes of God, right? Yes, God is love, but he is also holy. He is righteous. He is just. He is also a God of wrath, right? So yes, he is judge. And we've talked about both the unsaved and the saved. If you are saved, he's going to judge your works, right, for the wards that we've talked about earlier. But if Jesus Christ is not your mediator, it's a different kind of judgment. And God must execute that penalty of death, right? That's clear. So good. All right, I want you to turn to Romans 8. This might be one of my favorite chapters in the Bible simply because of the encouragement that it gives to those who are in Christ. And I want to continue this theme of, of Jesus Christ, if He truly is your mediator, is your advocate, um, the assurances and the hope that we have in Christ, and especially in His role as High Priest. So I'm going to jump around here a little bit and just highlight this idea of, of things we can be clinging to, these truths. It starts, and I often quote this, Romans 8.1. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Right? We talked about being able to approach the throne with confidence. And we can do that because there's no longer condemnation. We often fall in the trap of condemning ourselves. And that's what we have to fight. Right? Even in the midst of that, we have to approach with confidence. Lord, search me. Show me the sin in my life. Make it right. Right? We can have that cry to the Lord. Um, go over to Romans 8. Let me start in 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God. Again, we talked about Jesus ascending. Why? Because He wanted to, he wanted to now um, give us the Helper, the Holy Spirit. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. <clears throat> For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And then this is the verse. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. How do I know that I'm saved? Because his spirit testifies with my spirit. My spirit cries out, Abba, Father, right? And if that's so, we are co-heirs now with Jesus Christ. That is a great, great assurance. Continue on the next little bit. Um, it talks about groaning, right? And there's three groanings, if you will. Creation is groaning for that time when things will be restored. Remember, after the fall, even creation met the effects of distortion, right? That's going to be brought back to its glorified state. We groan ourselves, wanting to be in that position of glorification. But also, go down to verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit, remember the helper that was provided. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And this is a very familiar and wonderful passage. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Again, this idea we should be able to approach the throne with confidence. But why? Here we see the Holy Spirit is interceding for us. And to what purpose? God's will. 
what is best for us. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That's the assurance, that's the confidence we can have. Flip over then to verse 34. Paul, in, in his style of asking these rhetorical questions, who is to condemn? I'm sorry, let me back up. It is God who justifies, right? Declares us righteous. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, right? So you have the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? It is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If that doesn't encourage you, I don't know what will. So Romans 8, great, great chapter of the truths of Jesus filling that plan of redemption. All right, we got a couple minutes. Let's jump down to the application section. How does the advocacy of Jesus Christ on your behalf before the Father influence your everyday life? And again, get real with me. How does the fact that Jesus is our advocate influence our everyday life? Ms. Kareem. We can wake up and we can have hope for each day. Yep. Johnny. It's courage and strength to kind of live on and know that you know, it's not like, oh, I messed up, I lost my salvation, that's it, I'm over. So, yep. Yeah. Yep. Assurance, good. What else? I think along those same lines, like when we find ourselves like struggling with sin or like falling into it, like what Kayla was saying, like we can go to the Father about it. We can ask our <clears throat> Yeah. Yeah, I had a point here. Um, you're talking about our sanctification. Life is hard. Life is really, really hard, right? This, this assurance of his advocacy increases our desire to obey, right? It gives us that opportunity to continue, to continue, to continue to go to him when we continue to fall, right? That's the sanctification process. If you notice in Romans 8, something I read there, suffering is the path to glorification. You will suffer. You will go through trial and tribulation while you're here on this earth. It's going to happen. Right, and we sim we want to obey the Lord. We want to have the desire. We want that to increase by being filled with the Spirit. Um, speaking of sanctification, you know, it is going to help us to go through that sanctification process. Can you imagine going through life without an advocate? Um, for those that are single, that desire to be married, um, just with my own kids, I know how hard that is. Can you imagine trying to go through that trial, if you will, without an advocate like Jesus Christ? Um, how about those of you who are parents? That's easy job, isn't it? Easy peasy. No way. It's hard. It's really hard. But we have an advocate that helps us through all of that. Um, how about just being married? Love being married. It's a great sanctifying process. <laughs> It is. I, you guys have heard me say it. I wouldn't be the man I am today um, if I wasn't married to um, Kareem. And I wouldn't have the ulcers I have today if I <laughs> Really, I, I just, I can't even imagine life, um, you know, trying to go through the sanctification process without our advocate. But we have it, right? Uh, the one and only Jesus Christ. So, all right. Any other, and, and here's what I want to encourage you guys. Um, I know we come here on a Sunday morning, we talk about this, this theology, this doctrine, it's really important that we're applying this to our lives, and you guys, you guys know the applications we just went through, you know those, right? You know how we apply them to our lives, but I really want to encourage you to go back to some of the truths that we went over today, underline, bold, memorize, meditate, 
Those are precious, precious truths of who we are as children of God. Right? And let that be your armor that you put on. Is that fair? Yes. All right, good. All right, any other comments, questions? Pastor Allen. Um, I'm also reminded of the passage we talked about before that um, um, our high priest, Christ, um, was tempted in every way like we are, yet without sin. And in a selfish way, we might be tempted to say, okay, well, um, he's paid for that. His, his righteousness is what God looks at on our account. Um, and we might want to just say, okay, then I can do whatever I want. Mm. But the reality is that if he really has transformed our heart and, and brought us into a right relationship with God, then our desire or our motive is more out of love. Yeah. And knowing that he was able to live a sinless life in, in what was probably a much more difficult life than we've ever faced, um, it gives us the courage to ask him to help us through um, the day-to-day. -day. And we can rely on him yeah. and go to him. And um, uh, it's just a great combination of knowing that we know the final outcome, but he's also helping us through the day-to-day. -day. Amen. Yep. Yep, excellent point, thank you. All right, looking ahead, um, we have one more lesson on uh, the role of Jesus Christ. We've talked about prophet, priest, and the next one, king, right? Jesus Christ is king. That will wrap it up, and then we'll finish up um, this quarter talking about pneumatology. What is that? Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit right? What, exactly, <laughs> what we just talked about today, the helper, right? So this is all being tied together. All right, let me close in prayer.